here in my garage. Just bought this uh, new Lamborghini here. It's fun to drive up here in the Hollywood Hills. But you know what I like a lot more than materialistic things? Knowledge. In fact, I'm a lot more proud of these seven new bookshelves that I had to get installed to hold 2,000 new books that I bought. It's like the billionaire Warren Buffett says, the more you learn, the more you earn. Now, this isn't a get-rich-quick scheme. This is Sam. This is Austin. And this is Southpaw. Hey, and one more thing. If you love the show and want to support us, go to patreon.com slash southpawpod. So today on Southpaw, we have philosopher, eclectic thinker, internet voice from Wisecrack and Owls at Dawn, Austin Hayden. Hi, Austin. Yo, what's going down, man? So let's first start with your origin story. Where did you grow up? What was growing up like? What were the foundations of you being you? Yeah. Uh, so I was actually born in the LA area. I was born in a hospital in Glendora. And then grew up mostly in, I mean, I kind of bounced around quite a bit, but let's say South LA-ish area, Garden Grovey kind of area. Then moved to Newport Beach when I was uh, around five, something like that. So it was then South Orange County. So then total yuppie, middle class yuppie upbringing, right? And uh, I lived in Newport, then I lived in Laguna, then I lived in Rancho Santa Margarita, and that was where I went to high school. And then um, I was really into music. I was in a punk band, like a pop punk band. And then I was also really into acting and performing. So when I was 19, I uh, moved to LA to, you know, do the actor thing where you're basically just a waiter. That's really what that means. <laughs> okay. Um, so, so I lived in LA until I was, uh, I was in K town in Koreatown for people out there that don't know that, um, in this God awful apartment where <laughs> like fucking, it was me and cockroach. Do you ever see that movie? Joe's apartment. Is that what it was? Yeah. Yeah. It was like that, man. It was me and the cockroaches and my, my roommate, uh, just chilling. I think it was one of the early MTV movies. It, oh, it probably was. It's with Jerry O'Connell, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, just so long ago. It was pretty, I could totally resonate with that movie because that's what it was. You open up your cupboard and there are like three singing cockroaches and you're like, hey, good morning, assholes. It's time to go. So, um, yeah. So, so we would, uh, we would do that. Oh uh, yeah. So I'm living there. I'm doing the actor thing and it's all good. And then I basically had a, a freak out, a, a kind of a crisis of faith and belief and everything. Uh, I was just high on some edibles and uh, <laughs> potentially some other hallucinogenic stuff and i thought demons were taking over my soul for lack of a better word i i wasn't i wasn't really raised in a what i would say like a super christian environment but when you're when you grow up in southern california especially southern orange county it, you know it's it's pretty likely that you're going to have some sort of christian influence right and i guess the degree just depends on your family well my dad became a super conservative christian when i was like 
10, let's say he converted. And so I would, I would go to church on the weekends. And so I knew I had all the Bible stories in my head. And, and I remember being a kid and like thinking, like just trying really hard to ask Jesus into my heart. Like I thought that was the thing I had to do. Like if I just tried harder, like if I just asked with more sincerity, then it would actually be real. And I thought I would like to experience some sort of change, right? Well, I had some sort of weird ecstatic experience, you know, a few years later. I was 22 years old and uh, I literally, I thought demons were taking over my soul. I, I could, it felt like my life energy was being pulled from like the area of my solar plexus, you know? And so I was like, that's it. I'm done. I'm not going to be fucking around anymore. No more drugs, no more drinking. I'm going to stop pursuing selfish interests, which I, I kind of felt this overwhelming sense of guilt that night. And I said, I'm going to like become a pastor or I'm going to dedicate my life to Jesus now. It was uh -huh. my kind of, that was my come to Jesus moment, right? So I literally, I remember calling my mom and calling friends and I was like, these are guys that I like would party with that I was in my band with, like dudes that knew me from just being a hoe or whatever. And I'm like, guys, you don't understand. I'm going to be a missionary. I'm going to travel the world and I'm going to tell everybody about Jesus, right? And they're like, okay, dude. And they thought I was just <laughs> drunk and whatever, but I was sincere. And uh, I woke up the next morning I called my agent and I said, don't, you know, don't send me out on any more auditions. I'm done. Uh, and they were like, okay, you know, you don't need to make such a quick decision. And I was like, nope, that's it. I'm done. And from that point on, I basically dedicated myself to, let's say, academic pursuits. Although at that point, it meant more like reading the Bible, reading theology, stuff like that. Then I went to undergrad. Uh, I, you know, I dropped out of school at that point. I mean, I was, was doing like, classes in theater and music and stuff like that just to help me with my career interests but not not doing any of the core curriculum stuff at all i basically didn't care about any of it but this time i decided to go back to school for real so i went back to school to study theology and bible so i ended up doing a bachelor's degree in bible so then i had like a crisis out of faith i think i would say if that makes sense so i had a crisis into faith but then i had a crisis out of faith but this was less dramatic it was more of like a slow burn and what I mean is, is that it just took a long time. It was a lot of different events, circumstances, beliefs, frustrations, concerns, et cetera, et cetera, right? And I started reading the Bible in the original language. I started reading other interpretations, like theological interpretations of Christianity. So not just the American evangelical or the Calvinist or the Wesleyan or whatever, but there are all kinds of these different traditions within Christianity. And I started to realize that, you know, that, that it wasn't this competing thing. There's this, there's this joke, right. That, uh, that Christians love to tell. And it's, uh, gosh, it's like someone dies, say a dude dies and he gets up to the pearly gates and he meets St. Peter at the pearly gates and Peter's showing him around. And the guy's like, dude, this is great. And Peter's like, yeah, man, you know, we weren't BS and everything we said was this is a really cool place to hang. And Peter's like, cool. So, uh, uh, so here's this facility and here's that facility and here's that, here's that facility. And the guy's like, oh, who are these people over here? This group of people hanging out. And he's like, oh, you know, that's the Baptists and the, the, um, the Methodists. And you've got a couple Catholics scattered here. And the guy's like, oh, cool. You know, some of the Catholics made it because Protestants, you know, kind of think the Catholics worship Mary and saints and stuff like that. So yeah. maybe none of them made it sort of thing. But anyway, <laughs> you know, a couple of them, a couple of them might squeak in sort of thing. And uh, Peter's like, oh yeah, you know, they're hanging out there. And then the dude looks off in the distance and there's this group of people all by themselves 
Uh, and then the guy goes to Peter, who's that group way, way, way out there? And he goes, oh, them? Yeah, yeah, they're the Calvinists. They think they're the only ones here. <laughs> and so the joke is, is that, you know, there's this like competition, especially within the reformed type of Christian types, which tend to be very puritanical. Um, they're very like long grace, very austere, very serious, that kind of thing. Right. And I was in a part of a community that was like that. They might have thought that they were the only true believers on earth, you know, you know, it's, so it was a very interesting environment to be in. And as I'm reading these alternate traditions and I'm reading these different theological interpretations, I'm starting to become kind of skeptical of, I don't know, the validity, let's say, of that exclusionary view, right? So it kind of led me to reading something called Latin American Liberation Theology, which is where I found politics, which is where I found Marx, which is where I found critiques of religion that have kind of set me on my intellectual path ever since then. And that was, I'd say, what is this, 2019? So we're talking 12-ish years ago now, 12, 13 years ago now. And that's the theology that Pope Francis abides by, right? Yeah, I, I mean, loosely. So it's a it's a larger banner, but yes, because what they what they say is that they have a preferential option for the poor is a, a kind of a pithy little statement that they use. And well, Gustavo Gutierrez coins the term in I believe 1967. And what he says is that liberation is I'm sorry, salvation is the liberation of the oppressed, right? So rather than salvation just being some sort of pure reconciliation with an angry God that you have offended, that true salvation is the liberation of the oppressed. And there are, um, there has been a long tradition of social justice in the Christian church. There's been a long tradition of political liberation, contestation to oppressive power, but the liberation theologians in Latin America, and then it stands, you've got black liberation theology, you've got queer theology, you've got feminist theology, which are all kind of outworkings, or at least many of them have been inspired by this idea. It's just then let's broaden the concept of the poor, right? Let's broaden the concept of poverty. It doesn't just literally mean economic poverty. It could also mean social poverty, cultural poverty, uh, political co uh, capital poverty, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but when the Latin American liberationists, when they're when they're writing, they think that the church is too embedded with the dominant ideological power structures of the day, right? And they're working mostly within the Catholic church tradition. Um, and then you get some of them that are even more radical, like Jose Miranda, who's my favorite of them, who basically says that God doesn't exist. And this is a Catholic priest in Mexico, remember, at this point. He says God doesn't exist because God is justice and there is no justice. Therefore, God doesn't exist. And he says, but that's okay, because one day God might exist when there's justice on the earth. And then that is, it's kind of rhetorical. You know, he's being a bit inflammatory, but the idea is, is that he's trying to inspire us to think about what it might mean to truly have committed faith to this tradition where the supposed figurehead of the tradition, this figure, Jesus of Nazareth, is himself contesting the Roman power structure, the Jewish Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish religious, religio-political power structure of that day. When he's contesting them, and that's the bedrock of his faith orientation, of his message to the people. Um, how, would it, how is it that we can apply that and understand that without kind of succumbing to the pitfalls and the tendencies that the, in particular, Catholic Church, but just in general, let's say the Western imperialist, colonialist church has gotten caught up in? And so they're trying to figure out how to distance themselves with that uh, from that. 
So then that's what set me off into kind of finding Marx and then into critiques of religion, which Marx says, you know, all critique begins with the critique of religion in his earliest writings. And I think I kind of fall into a similar trajectory as that. And then I just go straight into doing PhD research in philosophy, political economy, et cetera. And that's kind of where my mind has been ever since. That's the kind of short, short version of it. And then my book, I guess, is an outworking of all of this, you know. Um, it kind of has moments of that theological past in it and my liberationist concerns. But then, of course, the more explicit philosophical and political concerns that have been my concerns for the last eight years, more so after doing my master's degree and stuff like that. So, yeah. So let's table the conversation about your book for now, because, I, you know, our brains need to warm up. My mouth needs to warm up. <laughs> <laughs> so everything needs to warm up. It's too powerful. But uh a lot of these stories that I've heard about people finding religion, the pattern that I see is always that is based around fear, right? Nobody's like has this happy, joyous experience and now they go to religion. Religion requires you to be like scared shitless, whether you see demons or you think you're going to go to hell or whatever. And it's just like not a good invitation, you know, doesn't seem like it's a good sign. My dad had skin cancer. That's what caused his conversion. We are white boys who grow up surfing. And so, you know, you just don't wear sunscreen very often. I mean, you should, but, you know, sometimes you're in a rush. You don't. We also are very athletic and sporty growing up playing basketball, baseball, all the sports, like our entire family on that side is that way. So as as a kid and into his teen years, he was always in the sun, got diagnosed with malignant melanoma. And then we have a saying in the church, it scared the hell out of him. <laughs> Hardy, har, har. Um, but you're right. It was a fear based thing. Right. Like he's scared. He thought he was going to die and he was afraid of death. And I think I don't necessarily think that's an automatic discrediting. Right. I mean, we do a lot of things out of fear. Uh, shit. So much of the stuff we do, it's, you know, even in in like pure evolutionary terms, they talk about the fight or flight method. Right. So we don't we're not even aware of how deep and how ubiquitous and maybe even how subtle sometimes fear can be. Right. But. You're absolutely right. It, it does seem that especially the more later in life radical kind of conversions into religion, into something that gives you a guarantee of an afterlife or into something that gives you a guarantee of a foundation of meaning, you know, like not even religion. Why do people fall in love with Jordan Peterson? Mm -hmm. You know, because he offers them something. He offers them a an alternative to ground their lives and something that is meaningful in a world that oftentimes doesn't provide those foundations. And so clean up your room, wash your penis, stand up straight, whatever the fuck it is that he says, you know, like that stuff is all like, that's right. You know, find your strength. Don't let the world uh, kind of uh, take away things from you. Find your freedom, take back your power, slay your dragons, all the things that he talks about are things that are pseudo-religious pop psychological substitutions for these metaphysical foundations that have existed for thousands of years. And so I don't know that it's something that's necessarily that we should immediately criticize, but I do think that relying too much or like over-determining our lives on fear is something to at least be aware of and be skeptical of, because then you oftentimes make rash decisions Yeah, just simply because I'm afraid of something. And usually when a decision is made based on simple fears, I don't know, it just seems to be that the decision isn't ultimately the one that's most productive and vital and powerful. But yeah. Also, my critique of fear is that, yes, fear is useful. Fear saves your life, right? But 
when people come together for fear, it doesn't make for a good time. It doesn't make for a good culture. I guess that would be my critique, not in its usefulness, but in the culture that it creates. So the example I would give is, let's say, martial arts, right? I train Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I train it because it's fun. I don't really care about whether I could use it on the street or not. But people who only care about martial arts because of this fear of what would happen on the street, they'll find a martial art. They'll all congregate there. And that martial art culture will be the most toxic, like crazy, paranoid. And then they get into these really far right, you know, extreme ideologies, right? Because they congregate around fear, which is different from the fun base. Like, let's have a good time group, right? That's like a lot more fun to be around than the people who are always paranoid, right? Yeah, I think you're right, man. There is, it is interesting, isn't it? I mean, I'm just trying to think about groups that I've been a part of or things that I've experienced, you know, like right now, obviously in the political world, people are are freaking out about the rise of authoritarianism, neo-nationalism, neo-Nazism, neo-fascism in some instances in Hungary, for example, with Viktor Orban, right? And so people are really concerned about this. So then like, let's look at what's really going on. And you've got these groups of people who are led oftentimes by singular charismatic leaders, no matter what you think of somebody like a Trump or an Orban or a Marine Le Pen. If you look at them and you're like, I don't understand why anybody buys that bullshit. The, the fact is that many people do, right? Somehow people are either vicariously finding enjoyment through a figure like Trump or the fears or the power, let's say, are somehow being stoked by somebody like an Orban to be skeptical of the immigrant or the the foreigner in the land that's going to ruin cultural homogeny that has kept things so good for X amount of years or whatever. That's generally the discourse, right? Or that somehow we need to go back to a time of supremacy like you get with the British Brexit narratives from like Gove and Boris Johnson and various various others, especially Nigel Farage. You know, that's, It's like this desire to reclaim the powers of the British Empire that once made Britain so great and culturally important and all this other stuff. But they're using fear, right? It's these people are stealing your jobs. Um, these people are extracting precious resources. These people are something, but it's always these people come in from the outside. They're the other, they're the stranger, and they're like some sort of virus, some sort of external thing. And that is a really powerful emotional trigger, right? Yeah. I mean. And then they'll use metaphors like, well, you, in your house, you don't just, you know, you hear this in the States a lot. I used to hear this bullshit all the time about uh, like Mexican immigrants coming over. And it's like, like, yeah, yeah, no, we want to take care of people and be nice. But like, you wouldn't just leave your front door open in your house, right, dude? And it's like, no, no, you don't lock your front door in your house because of somebody who's hungry or doesn't have economic opportunities in the neighbor uh, in like the adjacent neighborhood. That's not why you lock the door of your house. You lock the door of your house because we've created a f- culture of fear already that's based on this idea of already being afraid of people who are excluded as the other. So it's already based on this presumption of otherness. You know, it's like the the black urban youth that's going to come in and steal your jewelry or whatever. That's why. But there are fucking places in America where you don't lock your door because guess what? They have different societal frameworks. They have different structures where they aren't as afraid of those things coming in because they one, don't have kind of the socioeconomic conditions where there might be that type of petty crime. Um, two, they haven't kind of rooted themselves in uh, in this fear culture that's allowing everybody or that's kind of inducing everybody to be in this state of panic or paranoia or concern or whatever all the time. So again, you just have like this chain of fear. It's like fear based on top of fear that's based on these preconditions of other fear and these other conditions of fear. 
Um, but it's a really powerful emotional trigger if you can do stuff like that. If you can be like, look, you don't just leave your doors unlocked and you don't just invite everybody in and you don't just do this and you don't just do that because people are like, oh, that's right. And then you you attach to that because that really is like a palpable and visceral thing that strikes it in the core of your heart, you know? Yeah. It's uh, like self-perpetuating, but also self-defeating. Mm. One of the biggest flaws I find is like they want to reclaim what you said, right? The past, like Western values from, you know, ancient Greece or whatever, or like the Vikings or what have you. <laughs> right. Ideas of eudaimonia or happiness, human flourishing. But the thing is, once you really start to adopt conservatism, this fear-based kind of framework, and then it builds upon itself, you're further and further away from human flourishing because you're always scared, right? I mean, it's hard to define what happiness means, but my thesis is that fear does not make you happier. So the more you adopt fear, the more you are further away from the thing you wanted in the first place, which was this old Western value of eudaimonia or happiness, right? So you're self-defeating yourself. And then you can never resolve the problem, so you got to keep chasing after it. Yeah, that's it, man. It's like fear becomes the initial spark. I'm, I'm, you know what I'm picturing in my head? You know, like one of those long fuses that, that you see in like the cartoons where it's like this mm -hmm. really long fuse that's leading to a stick of dynamite, but the fuse is insanely long and all you got to do is like cut it yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. That's what I'm picturing fear is. Fear is like that spark that lights at the end of that fuse and it just keeps going and it keeps going and it keeps going and it keeps going and it will lead to that stick of dynamite and to some type of explosion, an explosion of violence, an explosion of fascism. Um, or an explosion of self-harm, maybe, right? That's what you see a lot with like incel culture and things that are going on. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, you've got fear and you've got anxieties that are all connected along this long fuse that are, the spark has been lit. And so the question is, is how do you put that that spark out? Well, you got to figure out how to cut the fuse. Yeah. And I, th I think that's partly addressing fear. That's addressing these conditions, these foundations that, allow that spark to continue to burn and that continue to give it fuel and energy, so to speak. And I don't always know what the answers are, man. And, and like I said, like we both obviously have admitted that fear is natural. Fear is part of life. Fear can sometimes have productive value to it. But at the same time, I just feel, feel like that if you base yourself, if you root your life or your social system or your political system in the fear of the other, the fear of the stranger, the fear of the outsider, you know, the fear of not getting a job, the fear of not being able to hit the mats. Like we used to have on my old jujitsu, I trained with Gracie Baja for a really long time. I've trained with a lot of different places and we can chat about that. But in my Gracie Baja uh, gym in Scotland, in Glasgow, they said, if you're not winning, you're learning. Mm -hmm. And I think that is it. That is the, like the one of the mantras of jujitsu, right? Is it's, if you're losing and you're getting tapped out, you're not losing. You're learning. You're learning. Now, you're not always learning. There are those <laughs> assholes that come in there and they don't accept the lesson and they, they just want to win and yeah. they get a little too aggressive. And then even in your own mind, you get frustrated and you're not and you feel like you've plateaued. But that that's the interesting thing is you actually are learning, though, through the repetition of making the same stupid mistake over and over again. And somehow you get put in the collar choke again. And you're like, how did I give up my neck and my lapel so easily? Like, how did I put myself in this position? Like, how did I get swept so easily? I thought that my base was strong, whatever. Da, 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 da. It might not be that way, but you are learning. And that it's that mentality to an openness and to a power 
that is alternative to fear, something that is like, that I think is actually ultimately stronger, even though you can look at the power of nationalism and fascism and you can say, oh, there's some kind of strength there. It's state strength. It's large community strength that people capitalize in. I think it's ultimately in like a cosmic sense. I think it's a weakness. And I think this idea of if you're not winning, you're learning, even though let's branch that out analog uh, analogously i think we can take that as like this larger metaphorical or poetic for how we can like orient ourselves in the world that it, it is it is about this openness and it is about learning it's about construction within the weakness not something that you should be afraid of actually that is a political quote because where jiu-jitsu got it from it was carlos gracie took that from nelson mandela so nelson mandela said it first oh no shit. so it was always originally a political statement Oh, God, that's perfect. Yeah. So it actually makes much more sense in that way. Totally. Absolutely. And I don't know, man. And this is just going to sound totally dudish, but I also kind of think that when I, when I feel that there's a community that is so conditioned by fear, I actually think they're weak. I actually feel bad in some ways because I don't think it's strong because I just see anxiety, you know, like I don't see strength. Like, like, I don't want to rag on the guy too much, uh, but again, I'll say the Jordan Peterson thing. Like when I see people that are hardcore Jordan Petersonites who I engage with a lot, I've, I tend to have like that pastor heart still and that missionary <laughs> spirit, you know, as I go out and I reach with people and I'm talking with people all the time across like different ideological lines. So I engage a lot with different folk, let's say. And so I've talked with a shit ton of Jordan Peterson supporters. I've watched too many of his videos and I've read too much of his stuff. Right. But. I just see fear. I see people who are afraid that their position of like cultural supremacy is being, you know, stripped from them. White dudes who used to think that the world was entirely theirs are starting to feel the effects of a world that is more cosmopolitan and that is more equal and where women have more rights than they did 50 years ago and where gays have more rights than they did 20 years ago, you know, and then where trans have more representation. I, I, would, I wouldn't quite go so far as to say rights yet better, but more than 10 years ago. And then you're like, oh, shit, man. Like, I thought that the world was mine. And now you have to realize, no, no, the world is ours. And we need to figure out what that means and how to work through that together. And you can either accept that. You can take that as some sort of new opportunity for us to create broader alliances. Or you can view that as a threat to the supposed resources that you either had access to or that you claimed ownership over. And I think that the latter idea is a fearful position. And I think one that's ultimately kind of weak shit, man. I'm like, it's just weak shit. And I see it. And I, could, I feel it. And it's something that I saw in the church too. Yeah. So that, that, that similar tendency, which is really what got us on this route of talking about fear, that you see in these political and social expressions um, that I think are rooted in fear are, I think, a type of pseudo-religious metaphysical concern that I think is very much kind of the same kind of neuroticism and anxiety that you get from Christian types. Have you ever read that book, I Am Legend? No, I saw the movie though, but I hear the book's a billion times better. The book is good, but it's this idea of how you think you're the hero and everybody else are the monsters. But then in the end, the twist is, wait, no, you're the monster. You're the one everybody fears at night, right? Like you think you're Beowulf and all along you were Grendel. That's interesting, man. Yeah, I think that's I've heard that that's the thing that the film totally misses out on that that's and that's the most crucial, I guess, thematic element of the book. And yeah, that's it. because That's the reveal, right? Like you are meant to align with the hero, the protagonist of this story. But he's a 
he's hunting these guys. They're just trying to survive, man. And this dude's out there like hunting them. <laughs> yeah. Like leave him alone, brother. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So he finds out in their folklore, he's like the werewolf. <laughs> That's so interesting. See, I like that. And I like that idea. That's th- that makes the title. I am legend. I am the thing of nightmares. I am the thing of legend. And I think that's that's interesting if you can kind of reverse that. And I think especially as an American who grew up in a real yuppie, conservative, wealthy part of the country, let alone part of the world, it's been a real eye-opening experience for me to realize that I am part of this vampiric system on the world, right? Mm-hmm. In this global system, I am complicit and I am like, the central representative. I am white and middle class and male, and I, I have certain like physical features. Like I'm in decent shape. I'm slender and I'm relatively tall. And I have these. I, I tick like all the boxes for the dude that is like part <laughs> of the cultural. I'm 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 literally of German descent. So like you look at my dad. My dad's tall, blonde hair, blue eyes. He looks like that Aryan dream that people talk about, <laughs> right? Yeah. So like like that's the stock that I come from. So I tick a lot of those supremacy boxes, let's say. And so it's been a real interesting conversion for me because I was blinded to the fact that I benefited from so many of those those boxes being checked growing up. And that's why Latin American liberation theology for me was such a converting type of moment out of not only the evangelical dogmatism that I had kind of converted myself into, but even more importantly, I would say the sort of like American Western supremacy, that ideological dominance that I didn't even see. I didn't even realize that I was buying into that. I was swimming in those waters, you know? So that's been, it's been really interesting to see that, but I guess, yeah. That I am legend thing is uh, it's, a, it's a really apt metaphor. I think all men, especially in this country, right, we could have turned into incels. And the ones that didn't, it's like we all in high school or like through puberty, there's this monomyth, like hero of a thousand faces, Joseph Campbell, kind of like jumping through the ring of fire moment where we have this epiphany. You know, maybe it's at a party, maybe the way we were talking to somebody or we were bullying somebody and then we're like, oh, shit, I'm the asshole. Oh, shit. (laughs) Right. But the ones who never had that moment, they just keep going and going and going. Yeah. And I think to be fair, too, I mean, we do live in a world that kids are mean. Yeah. You know, and we live in a world that is extremely superficial. And I just spent I just recently I don't know if you've downloaded it. I just recently downloaded TikTok. I don't know if I'm like doing myself a disservice by having this friggin' app on my phone, but some of it's pretty funny. But it's really young, man. All the people that are on this app are, they're like Gen Zers, you know? And I'm in my 30s. So, and then there are the other people in their 30s. And that's one of the constant jokes. The refrain is like, I'm in my 30s. Why am I on TikTok? And then you get people that are like, I'm 25 and I'm old for TikTok. And I'm like, whoa, dude. So it's a very young app, right? But you look at this and I just get this sense that this is like all the stuff that people criticize Snapchat and Instagram for and like the influencer (laughs) culture for, for like chasing after these superficial desires and seeking external validation. It's intensified and it meets like it just converges with TikTok. It's people that are all trying to be famous. They are clamoring to go viral. They are clamoring for followers, which means that they're clamoring for some sort of validation right? They're clamoring for some sort of attention and recognition. So we live in a world that is like inducing us into these 
perpetual panicked anxious states where it's like if we don't have x amount of followers if i don't get x amount of attention from these types of people then somehow i'm a failure i'm a loser i'm i don't have my self-worth so the incel phenomenon let's say which i think is part of it which is a real sort of like it's a branded way of speaking about a much larger concern yeah which is why is it that people feel excluded in a world that is driven by a pop culture industry that says you've got to be beautiful, you've got to be ripped, you've got to be this, you've got to be that, you've got to be rich, you've got to have a car, you've got to read X amount of books. I mean, you get those dudes, like, what's that YouTube ad guy? The guy's like, here I am with my Lamborghini in my car. You want to know how I got it? I read five books a day. What's that dude's name? I can't remember, but like the Gary V shit. It's like, you know, hustle more, work more, burn yourself out. And I'm like, wait a second here. I don't know. There's a philosopher named Byung Chul Han that wrote a book called The Burnout Society. And in it, he talks about how we're kind of like perpetually chasing after. He calls our, he says that we have become achievement subjects and we're entrepreneurs of the self, which is a term in political economic circles that is used quite a bit. Um, that, uh, that you become like someone who is trying to build your own capital assets. You know, you build your education, you build your fitness assets, but then you've got this portfolio that you're trying to manage in front of you of all of your assets. I've got my LinkedIn followers. I've got my CV assets that look good. I say the right things. Uh, I got a good credit score. Uh, I got my Facebook followers, whatever it is, right? And these are your assets that are in your portfolio and you are your own type of quote unquote financier. And that's your portfolio that you're able to then invest into other projects. And then simultaneously, you're able to court investment from other people because then you can show them, be like, well, here's my diversified portfolio. I've got X amount of Instagram followers and here's my Twitter profile and here's my YouTube series, da, 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 da. And you can use that to then try to get other people to be like, oh, cool, I'm going to invest in your product sort of thing. Well, what happens when you don't have a portfolio or what happens when your portfolio doesn't meet the standards that have been set by these external forces well, then you feel like you're left out and you feel left behind and you feel like a piece of shit. And I don't think that that's irrational or stupid. I think you like I think it's it's genuine, you know, that there is a sense in which the pop culture driven industry really is leaving certain people behind or it's forcing people to just become cookie cutter and everyone just has to say the same thing, make the same TikTok videos, do the same <laughs> dances like it's. Yeah, it, I just see, and I again, Byung-Chul Han calls it the inferno of the same. So instead of like the philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre has a famous phrase where he says, hell is other people, <laughs> and Byung-Chul Han kind of inverts that, and it's like, no, we live in the inferno of the same. There is no otherness. There is nothing unique. There's no negativity. There's no tension. Everybody's saying the same thing, wearing the same clothes, acting the same way, gesturing in the same way, posing in the same way, talking about the same shit, blah, 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 blah. This is where I should insert Ty Lopez, right? That's the name, Ty <laughs> Lopez. That guy. That God. guy. I'll insert his infomercial right here. <laughs> oh, God, please do not. Here I am just chilling in my house with my Lamborghini. It's like, you're such a douchebag. It's like, oh, no. I'm just sitting here <laughs> with my books. If you want a Lambo too, just read your books. It's like, no, man, you're a freaking charlatan. That's why you've got your Lambo. He's like also into all that hacking bullshit, you know? What is he into? Hacking. Like when he talks about reading five books, he's talking about like you do a few simple tricks every day. Oh, yeah. And those tricks will have like these crazy dividends on your life as far as like your earning potential or the amount of women you can meet. That's right. This is the, the uh, life hack become total life principle thing, right? Yeah. Like I, I'm down with a life hack that helps me clean my house better or that helps me like 
prepare my food better. That I'm cool with. But do we really think that a life hack for me to meet a partner or to earn money, like, I don't know if that's a life hack or if that's just like learning shortcuts. And I don't know, like my, my co-host and I, Troy and I, uh, from Owls at Dawn, we talk about this a lot. It's like, do you really find value in something if you just get it? I, we were talking in this last episode. He was talking about a, a kind of a serious circumstance he went through. His cat passed away and he went through some suffering with he and his partner. And it was kind of like, you know, they were, they were, he, he, he wanted to say that there's like a value in going through this suffering. And I kind of used an analogy that was probably a little bit tacky, but I was like, there are these dudes that get calf implants in LA. I'm sure they're elsewhere in the world too. And whatever, man, if you want to aesthetically modify your body, have the fuck at it. I've got tattoos. So there's really a difference of degree here, not kind, right? But the difference is that when you get like a calf implant, whereas if you work out at the gym and you get like ripped calves over years and years and years of bodybuilding and strength training and eating well and doing like uh, different types of exercises, if you get those ripped calves at the end, you're probably going to appreciate it a whole lot more than just someone who pays a couple grand to go in and get these calves. Now, you might like the way you look and you might be able to show it off at the beach or you know how they do butt selfies? What would be a calf selfie? A kelfie? I, I don't even know if that's a thing. But if you got your kelfie. Calfie. Calfie. It's a kelfie. Yeah, you got your kelfie profile on Instagram and you've got your hundreds of thousands of followers. Maybe that's the thing that fulfills you. But I don't know if it creates the same type of appreciation and enjoyment and connection and value when you actually struggle and work through and deal with the pain and the years of actually building up those muscles, right? And I think it's something similar with a relationship. Like, I'm a dude that has, I'm single, I've been single for a long time. I mean, I've been in relationships, long-term relationships, but, you know, it's really easy to just make those simple superficial connections. I'm very good at that. Like, I'm good at, like, just connecting with people. But to really make those deep connections, that's fucking hard, man. That's hard and it's uncomfortable and it takes a long time and you have to open yourself up to weaknesses and you tear yourself down. It's like tearing down muscle fibers. You tear down like quote unquote heart fibers, I guess, and you rebuild in a different way. I mean, that shit's hard. I don't know if like life hacks and relationship hacks and yeah. <laughs> success hacks are really the way to go about it. I don't know if that's the good life in the grand scheme of things. And that's, that would be more my concern. The system that was invented to get the last bit of toothpaste out of <laughs> your toothpaste tube shouldn't be how you model your life. Yeah, dude. I mean, I saw a really good life hack last night on TikTok, by the way. Um, <laughs> and it was like it was like this sponge. Like, you know how everyone has windowsills and it's got those the tracks that kind of stand up. And so this, the things don't really fit in there. You know, you spray your spray in there. And you can't stick your sponge in there. And so they just took a basic kitchen sponge. And they lined it up on the, the kind of like tracks in the windowsill. And then they drew little lines where the actual individual tracks were. And then they cut it with a little razor blade so that the sponge would kind of like fray open or like splay open and fit perfectly around the tracks and then sink down into those valleys. And then you spray inside there and then you just put it in there and you wipe it down. I'm like, dude, my life has been changed forever now. That I'll take. <laughs> I'll take some of that. You know what it's like? It's like neoliberalism where we had like, public sectors and private sectors and neoliberalism is like, no, no, we're not just good in our sectors. This can be good in all sectors, right? So yeah. that whole that whole <laughs> hack you said, it's good in this lane, but then <laughs> the right. hackers are like, no, this system should be in all lanes. That's it, man. The neoliberalism of hacks. This is why I'm terrified of the algorithm, right? <laughs> like, like, I'm really afraid of math. 
right now. And I'm doing some work on on math at the moment. My current research is really on, I'm looking at uh, financial pricing models and uh, the logic of speculation in financial markets. And I'm, I'm trying to do some work and understanding like what are the real mechanisms of of profit generation and let's say wealth generation within financialization, right? But so I'm, I'm like obsessed with math right now. And I, math is important. Math has gotten us to the moon. Math is making us so that you and I can talk right now, right? Over the internet, over thousands of miles around the world. The fact that I can even say thousands of miles around the world and understand some sort of geographical distance is because of math. Like math isn't a bad thing. So I'm not saying that. But what I am afraid of is when everything becomes mathematized, when everything becomes reduced to bits that can be managed through linear algebraic equations, when it's like, all we need is just a little bit more input and then our equations will be perfect. And then you've got machine learning and AI that's just around the corner that is supposedly going to bring this techno-utopian future where the robots are doing all the heavy lifting and we can just sit back and enjoy ourselves. I'm like, I don't know, man. Like, I don't know if this is the world that I want to live in for all kinds of reasons, but what if we cede too much to the algorithm? Then we lose out on other things that aren't just simply algebraically fixable you know and those are i'm not sure man it's similar right yeah we need a little bit of qualitative diversity in here but beyond just the quantitative life hacks of uh of contemporary culture it's like we're constantly relitigating the same philosophical arguments that's already been done like from what i understand about positivism right mm -hmm. it's like uh oh yeah science works over here we could apply it to policies and governments we can use it everywhere right right and then it's like no it doesn't work everywhere and so we figure that out and then we take a new thing like math or hacking and it's like oh this can work everywhere it's like do we got to re-argue this every time over and over like it's the first time didn't we already decide this mm. yeah i mean it's really difficult to ask the big questions nowadays you know i talk about this with all kinds of researchers all the time who are in the social sciences who are in the stem courses or in the STEM fields, I should say. And we talk about this quite a bit, especially people who do have more of an interest in those qualitative concerns, in the philosophical concerns. And the people in social science, in the business schools, a lot of times they sense this lack or this insufficiency of asking those deeper philosophical questions. But the discourses that we prize, the discourses that really dominate the world right now they sort of foreclose the options from even asking these questions of like, what is the good life? Should we pursue machine learning? Should we pursue X, Y, and Z? And when you ask those questions, what is good? What is ethics? What is, uh, what is the good society? Um, what is a good allocation of resources? Why should we prize equality? Why should like, well, those questions are philosophical questions and those things don't even really belong in the center of our popular discourses. Not that they don't exist. There are some people asking the questions, but it's definitely a minority voice and they don't exist at the levels of like technocratic, man technocratic managerialism that exists in the EU and in the central bank and in the inner halls of the most powerful and dominant institutions around the world. You know, let's uh, change pace here for a second. So how we connected online was because we're both interested in combat sports and in particular MMA, right? Yep perhaps even on a philosophical level. So what got you interested in combat sports? <laughs> it's not philosophical, brother. Karate <laughs> kid, man. <laughs> Karate kid got it me It wasn't interested. the struggle of humanity. It's like a metaphor for just coming out of the primordial ooze and all God. that. 
God, I could bullshit myself and try to paint it over with some sort of deep philosophical profundity. But no, man, it was Danielson. I it really wanted to was. learn how to do the, the fucking crane, dude. <laughs> that movie still to this day, I watched it recently uh, for another podcast. And man, it, it still hits me in the feels. I cry at the end. <laughs> God. Um, okay. Like I'm joking partly, but I'm also entirely serious. That was the first thing that got me into combat sports, martial arts. I mean, I grew up again in a very sporty family. So I can remember as a young boy, I believe it was the Buster Douglas, Mike Tyson fight, watching it at a neighbor's, uh, a neighbor's house, you know, a little kid. And I can remember this. I definitely remember watching boxing and I'm pretty sure I remember watching that fight with my, with my dad and some of his buddies. So I grew up just in a sporty family. So, so combat sports was around, but then it was really karate kid that got me into karate. And then of course, Bloodsport was one of my favorite films ever. So you got Van Damme. And so then I told my mom, I said, I wanted to do karate. And so I did karate when I was probably nine for just like a year. And then, no, I'm sorry. I was eight because then we moved and we went to Carlsbad. We only lived in Carlsbad for a short amount of time. But while I was in Carlsbad, I took a judo class. So then I did judo. Was your dad in the military? Is that why you moved so much? It's not. My mom just... My mom, she just was seeking opportunities for her little boy, I guess you would say. I mean, it was kind of like the, the upward mobility thing. My mom comes from a real poor class background, and we lived in like small time. And my parents were never married, too, but they actually split up when I was like one year old. They were young, 20, 21 years old, something like that when I was born. And so they split up. They were never married. Then my dad goes on in his own route, and then he becomes a Christian later in life, right? And my mom kind of did her own thing and has a kind of a different family, but um but yeah, but for a while, it was just a single mother, basically, living with my mom. And I would visit my dad on the weekends and, and, and whatnot. But she was just seeking that upward mobility and, you know, new jobs and stuff like that. So she bounced around from this apartment to a better area apartment to a bigger apartment and an even better area to whatever. So that was the plot of The Karate Kid. You know that, right? <laughs> Dude, maybe that's why I vibe with this movie so much because they moved <laughs> from Jersey and my mom's from fucking Jersey and she's dark skinned. Dar- oh, my God. Come on, man. You've only talked to philosophers. You needed a martial arts meathead guy to put this together for you, man. Ah, that's it, man. <laughs> and then they moved to friggin' L.A. and it's the palm trees. Yeah. Yeah. That the, the mother in Karate Kid does remind me of my mom in some way. She's got this like power and this strength and this optimism and this joy about her. Yeah. Yeah, very much. And then he goes to the beach, tries to learn how to surf and do all that stuff. And then they get into the fight. That's it. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And I did fall in love with Elizabeth Shue from that movie, too. So there you go. Oh, my gosh. So you did judo. Did judo for a little bit. And then I didn't do anything for quite a few years uh, being back in Orange County. I mean, I still loved the films and uh, that, the, you know, martial arts films. And I still loved the culture of it. But then in high school, a guy who was he was kind of a buddy of mine. Then he became like I became closer with him a little bit later in life, but uh, a guy named Jake Brennan was in my grade and he has an older brother, um, actually a couple older brothers. There's Zach Brennan, uh, Nick Brennan, and then, fuck, I forgot the oldest, Chris Brennan. West Side Strangler. Yes, that's him, man. He's one of the like pioneers in, especially in Orange County, but he's one of the pioneers of no-gi jujitsu, right? And Jake was his young, I think they might have a younger brother, younger than that too, but he was like one of the youngest of the brothers. And he used to like, you can watch the old videos of Pride and 
uh, stuff like that, where they go out and they're like holding like shoulders, you know, like the old Gracie thing that they used to do, where they yeah, uh, you can see like the Brennans. I think they're doing that, where you see like uh, Jake and you see Zach, who's Zach's Jake's older brother. Um, but so then they kind of started talking about you know this sport, and it kind of made it a cool thing at my high school. And then post high school, like right at the end of high school, that's when uh, a lot of my friends started training. I'd say 17 years old, 17, 18, 19, especially they started training in mixed martial arts. And so then that was when I started training in mixed martial arts as well. I found a studio in Orange County. I trained. uh, It was called Orange County Kickboxing and Martial Arts. But Clever Luciano was our jujitsu instructor. And for people who don't know, Orange County really was the hotbed of mixed martial arts for a long time. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it still is. You've got guys like Alan Ghosh, you've got Kleber for, uh, and then of course you've got all the guys like fucking Tito and then you've got Kings MMA and you've got, and then of course the Brennans, they had their own, uh, uh, next gen is what it's called and next gen MMA next generation. And so they're all over in Orange County and they have studios all over the world too. Cause Chris is a pretty important figure in the history of jujitsu. And so you've got all these jujitsu schools all over Orange County. And so there was Joker. He had his school that I had a lot of friends that trained at, you know, Guyman. Um, is it Mike Guyman? Yeah. His school was there. And so you had all these, these kids that were high school kids that were like scene kids, punk kids, hardcore kids, but they would train in mixed martial arts. And so I got a little bit caught up in that in my my later teen years. And that was when I started properly training mixed martial arts. And Dan Sullivan, who was the Sifu at OC Kickboxing and Mixed Martial Arts, was trained by Dan Inesanto, who for people who know is the only person who was ever kind of like bestowed with the the luxury of of teaching Jeet Kune Do by Bruce, Bruce Lee, right? And Dan Inesanto is kind of a, a hero in martial arts in his own right. I'm sure you know that, but the audience for people that might not know that. And uh, so Dan Inasanto would come in and he would teach seminars and we did like Savat and we did uh, Kali Salat and we did Muay Thai and then we did boxing, we did jujitsu and then of course we did Jeet Kune Do. And so I did that for a couple of years. And then because I moved around a lot after that as well, then I just would find different studios where I lived. So I trained at Big John McCarthy's Ultimate Training Academy when I lived in the Valley in LA, um, which was this insane facility with so many different people i mean the the instructors that were there were there's this constant rotation of badass jujitsu kickboxing mma instructors so i was there then i told you i was in a gracie baja system for a bit because again then i'm in scotland and i'm like well where can i train and so it was it was a, a lot of times it was about convenience too just trying to figure out what was near me you know, and then of course, what was close to me. So I kind of bounced around to a bunch of different schools. So it's been off and on since I was uh, 18, really, uh, that I've been training in mixed martial arts more off than on. But like, even here in Sydney, I found a place where I was just doing some Muay Thai stuff. I haven't done jujitsu properly in a really long time. And it's because I tweaked my elbow last time and I always get hurt in jujitsu. Um, so I kind of am like, like my back, my elbow, my knee, I hurt my knee in a bad car accident when I was younger too. So like that's still jacked up and, but you know, just for fitness and for health and for strength, because I enjoy the, to kind of get out there and move a little Muay Thai has been, I think the thing that I've spent mo- most of my time in. Now, do you find that in physical culture and physical training, you find something you're lacking from intellectual culture and intellectual training? Yeah, I think so. I heard somebody once say something about like, 
you get a bunch of academics and they'll be able to write like a really good paper on dancing if they were at a party rather than actually just getting up and dancing. <laughs> and, you know, and I think there's a stereotype, but there's some truth to that. And that's not always the case. I, I know academics and those who pursue intellectual pleasures who also pursue physical things, especially now. Yeah. It's especially because they're like long distance runners or they're rock climbers or they're wind surfers. They've got their thing that is a physical activity. So it's definitely more prominent now to have that balance. But, but yeah, I think that maybe even that speaks of the fact that there's something missing or there's something lacking in the intellectual pursuits, right? That there's something that you get from training the body in a, in a more explicitly physical sense that you don't often get in the intellectual sense, you know? And what is it? It's a, it's a strength, it's a power, it's a rootedness in the world, it's a feeling your place on earth. Um, I, I think that that stuff is oftentimes missing when your head is in the clouds, so to speak. Have you ever thought about why MMA is so popular right now or has been over time? Yeah, I think about this all the time, you know, and I sometimes feel a little bit of a guilt because I'm a pacifist <laughs> ultimately. Yeah. Right? Like I'm a pacifist. I'm non-interventionist. I... And I'm not a fighter anyway. I've never been like, I'm not an aggressive dude. Like at the parties when I was with my buddies that trained in MMA stuff, they were always in fucking fights. I had this buddy named Josh. He was guaranteed, man. We'd be at a party and within 10 minutes, he'd be beating the shit out of some surfer dude. And it's like, I just wanted to meet chicks and like get drunk and like hang out with my boys. Like, I don't want to get into a fight. And so whenever a fight would break out, I'd always be the guy that's like, no, 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 guys, let's not do this. You know? <laughs> So I've never been aggressive. I've never been a fighter. I've always wanted people to like me. Um, so, you know, so I do wonder and I do have this guilt about like, what is it that draws us to MMA? And I heard from all the voices that I'm going to quote and talk about on this podcast, this might be the most interestingly or surprising, let's say, but Max Kellerman from ESPN once was like, fighting is just primal. It is like the thing that all the other sports are metaphors of. And he says, every other sport is about a struggle and a fight, but it's metaphorical in basketball, in football, in hockey, in soccer, in curling. They're all metaphors in this competition to struggle and to force your will or to beat or best your opponent. Whereas fighting, he says, is the most primal and is the explicit expression of that struggle, which I, I think that that is, there's not exactly accurate, but there's something to it that is really interesting. And he says, he's like, you go to a stop. He's like, if you pull up at a stoplight and there's like four corners, he's like, if you've got LeBron James and Kobe Bryant on one corner and you got Tom Brady and I don't know who's a superstar, right? Deshaun Watson and Le'Veon Bell on that corner. Like, are they the big superstars in the NFL right now? Maybe. And then on the other corner, you've got like, who are the soccer? I don't even know soccer superstars. Yeah, I'm thinking like old soccer. I was going to say Alexi Lawless, but nobody knows who he is. He's a commentator now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But you got uh, Donovan, you got Donovan. And then, you know, whoever the figures are that are like the dominant figures in American soccer at the moment. He's like, you pull up to that stop sign. He's like, you're going to be really appealed. He's like, and then on the fourth corner, if you just get two random dudes that are beating the shit out of each other, he's like, where's everybody's attention going to go? It's going to go to that corner. They don't have to be superstars. They don't have to be known. They don't have to be popular or famous. Everybody's going to look at that. He's like, because there's something that just pulls us towards that. And when I heard that, I was like, you know what, man? Truth. Yeah. Hashtag truth, Kellerman. Well, even the athletes will go over there and watch it. Yeah. 
Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> LeBron and Tom Brady are going to leave are going to leave Kobe and Le- Le'Veon Bell and they're going to be like, "Whoa." And then they're all going to run over together. Yeah, they're going that's where they're going to go. They don't want to hang out. Yeah. There's something about it that's like just gravitationally attractive. I think people are becoming more and more aware that Joe Rogan is the most powerful voice on the internet, but they think it's a coincidence that he happens to be an MMA commentator. But I don't think it's by coincidence. I think it is because of the MMA is why he's so powerful. That's interesting. He has a he has something about him that is um that is very attractive, I think. He he has this authenticity, this at least a veneer of openness. Even though I think that there's clear ideological skewing when you listen to his podcast and when you pay attention to the quality of guests that he has, uh, even though he tries to get like Abby Martin on, who's great, uh, he'll try to get left voices on there, you know, but, but he definitely skews more, um, centrist. There's this great, there's this great phrase, um, by, oh God, I forgot his name now. Uh, I can't remember. Uh, but anyway, he's a British academic and he wrote a book called the extreme center. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's it. It's that the center is huge left, right. It kind of straddles this, this large domain. Cause he'll be like, I'm even left sometimes, you know? And he's like, I'm like, look at me. I believe in these like social services. And he's like, I'm left. And it's like, well, no, you, you kind of like have concern for humanity. So in that sense, you're not like some sort of like asshole and you are intelligent and rational and you can think through things. And so you do have a measured, a measured perspective on, on issues, but he still definitely is a little more conservative. So there's something about that extreme center and his authenticity within that extreme center and our world, like to go back previously, we're talking about like this like superficiality, this world where the inferno of the same, and we need something then to wake us up from that anesthetized state, right? It's like if you're all just stuck in the matrix, saying the same thing, eating the same foods, et cetera, et cetera, like what is it that will spark you and wake you up? Well, you need something that will like jolt you, that will stimulate you. And MMA can do that. Comedy can do that. You know, going to a music festival can do that, you know? Eating some caps, MDMA, for those of you that aren't familiar with the Australian or the drug <laughs> lingo, but having a cap or a couple caps in a night, that does that. It shocks you from your anesthetized state, right? And and I think that MMA as a cultural spectacle kind of does that. It It is kind of a spectacle. And then, of course, you have to convert it or converge it, let's say, with that primality that it appeals to. So you've got like this primal appeal. You've got, you know, that that street metaphor that we were talking about. Then you've got how it is a radical stimulus to wake us from a world of drab, bland, repetition, nine to five, you're bored. It's the same Netflix bullshit. It's the same boring food. It's the same chore routine, whatever it is. The news cycle is ridiculous and says the same stuff over and over again. You got all that. And so you need to find these sources that are going to like wake you from that. And so he has become a voice almost, I think, of the stimulus, right? He's Tyler Durden. Yeah, I think so. In a lot of ways, that's actually a really good way of putting it. Yeah. Um, even though I think that politically Durden was obviously much more radical. Yeah. You know, he literally plots to blow up all the credit card systems to eliminate debt, which is not something that uh, obviously Rogan is doing. But there is, he's like, 
good looking. He's broish. I mean, I, I know he's not like super good looking. He's not like tall and slender, but you know, he's not ugly. Um, but you know, he's like dudeish, and he's got the tattoos, and he's strong, and he's ripped, and he trains in sport, and he seems to have a power and a strength about him, like a like a fuck you, I don't care, like a, I'm a I'm an individual force in this world kind of attitude. Yeah, and so I think he kind of embodies that convergence of of being able to like offer people that stimulus that can break free from an anesthetized state. Yeah, he's a proxy because in comparison to everything else, right? He's like the hackneyed version, right? It's like that meme when you can't afford the real thing. Here's my version of the good thing. And it's Joe Rogan. It's like you have a meme of Tyler Durden. And then it's like the real life version. It's like Joe Rogan. You know, it's like what I look like, what I think I look like, uh, you know, when I'm doing yoga, what I really look like. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Rogan thinks he's Tyler Durden, but really he's a proxy for the extreme center. Yes. And I think also like what MMA or just fighting and fight club is like this, what you said, primordial is like primal. It's kind of this low-tech scream in a very high-tech world, right? And as the world becomes more high-tech, MMA and fighting and people like Joe Rogan more and mm. more represents the low-tech end that we used to have. That's it, man. It's analog in a digital world. There's a great song by uh, the Pharmaceutical Bandits, the RX Bandits, that uh, that's one of the lyrics. He says, analog boy in a digital world. And, and that's it, man. He, MMA is analog. MMA is material, it is physical, it is stripped bare of all the fluff and the frills. Yeah, the shows, I don't know. Have you been to a UFC event? Yeah. They're they're crazy, man. It's like the spectacle. I mean, it's not like the old Pride days where you got like fireworks and shit, but still, like the graphics are amazing and the stadiums are huge and the lights and the music and the sound and the energy. It is it is a it is the Roman Coliseum, right? And down inside in this tiny cage, even if you're up in the nosebleeds and you can't even see really what's going on, you just see figures moving. You have to watch the screen because you're so far up when you're watching that. What you see happening is life. If everything else is digital simulation, the matrix, that is life. And that's it, man. And we want that. We need that. We crave that. It's like having water and being parched in a desert and you find an oasis. And you might only get a little bit and you need to dip your mouth into that spring. But when we find those sources of, of, um, of rehydration, then that's what we gravitate to. And I think that's kind of what it does is it offers us something in our symptomatic malaise that gives us fresh air or hydration. What if this is all a simulation, right? If this were all a simulation, would MMA exist? Probably not. <laughs> Right? Why would they have MMA in a simulation? It just doesn't sound right. It's so it's like this is how I know everything is real because this crazy shit exists. You know, <laughs> it's like a dynamite. It's chaos. It's button smashing. Go even further. If if we were in a simulation, would you have those crazy extreme wrestling videos of like dudes in Tennessee jumping off the roof onto picnic <laughs> tables and shit like that? Would that yeah, shit exist? Wrestling. If we were, yeah, would we have that? <laughs> Why would aliens make that? No. That's how we know this shit is real. Uh, yeah, I don't know, man. Uh, unless they just wanted to create some sort of weird, supposedly f a culture that or a society that thinks they're free, right? Maybe that's it. It's... It's like self-inducing ourselves to even be more attached to the matrix. It's yeah, that's it. It's that's what it is. It's to make us think that we're not in the matrix. As a matter of fact, the thing that you just said, 
is the most that's that's, per, that's exactly what the aliens want us to think that's pure ideology sam <laughs> we can't be in a simulation because look how free and crazy we are with mma and backyard wrestling and they're like aha we got him well that's kind of like trump right i did the random thing we voted this guy in of course there's free will now right and that's what they want us to think yeah exactly actually this is a good segue into now the powerful heavy steroidal mind-bending thoughts mm. So you have a philosophy book called Sartre, Imagination and Dialectical Reason, Creating Society as a Work of Art. That's a mouthful. Yeah. It's more of a text for philosophers and philosophy students than it is a pop philosophy book. 100%. So when I asked you about what the book was about, and let me quote you here, this book is about how we can use the power of the imagination to recreate the world. It converges at the intersection between existential concerns of freedom and post-Marxist concerns for social and subjective transformation. I craft a few ideas about how our material contexts condition forms of thinking that prevent genuine creation of alternatives, so we end up reproducing the same exploitative and oppressive worlds. And then I work on some speculative ideas about how to break out of that cul-de-sac. One of the ideas pertains to the literal creation of new subjectivities, new humanisms, new ways of being, this thing we aspire to be that we call the human. So this is pretty inside baseball, right? So let's start to unpack these ideas. So first off, who is Jean-Paul Sartre? And you mentioned him before, but who is he? He's a French philosopher from the 20th century. And uh, he's born in, I think it's 1905, but he dies in like 1980. And he is known as kind of the godfather, let's say, of existentialism, even though there are other figures before him. You have Dostoevsky and Soren Kierkegaard, who are existential forefathers. Sartre is kind of considered the guy when you think about existentialism. And he coins this phrase in this really famous speech that he gives that's turned into a publication later. Uh, that's called existentialism is a humanism. And he says, existence precedes essence. And that's what he means as kind of trying to encapsulate what existentialism is. And so what he means by that is that you just simply exist, let's say, before you have an essence that defines what that existence is. So a lot of times you might get an idea that predetermines or that like pre-contextualizes who you are, what you can do, how you can behave, right? You're an American, Sam. And that Americanism is an essence that defines you. And you're a man. And you're a jujitsu lover. Those things are essences that define you. So the question is, is, do they not also define you, but can they also restrict you? Like, can you be something other than a man and American and a jujitsu lover? Like, what if you want to be a jujitsu hater? You know, what if you want to renounce your Americanism? And what if you don't want to be a man anymore? Like, do those things work? Well, an essentialist, somebody who believes in the foundational centrality, let's say, of essences, would say, no, you can't do that because you just simply are those things, right? It's like that famous, who was the, the announcer on Fox that was like, sorry, kids, Santa just is white, right? <laughs> right? It's like that kind of thing. It's, yeah. like, it's like you just are this way. And when you do that, you're essentializing something. You're distilling it, you're boiling it down to that foundational thing from which it cannot stray. And he says, no, 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 no. The central principle of existentialism 
is that existence is first. And the reason he says that is he says, because whenever you start to essentialize something, it's rooted in some sort of metaphysics. Metaphysics just means beyond physics, more than physics, outside of just the physica, the physical, right? And so uh, whenever you start talking about essences, then what you're doing is you're kind of appealing to supposedly this reality of this metaphysical world. But how do you define that? How do you justify that? How do you ground that? One of the ways that people have grounded that is through God. That God is the sort of metaphysical basis of essences or this idea of some people appeal to natural law, that nature somehow is that bedrock that gives us the foundation of essences. So you just simply are a man, Sam. Sorry, gender just simply is X chromosomes versus this amount of chromosomes on like Y chromosomes. And I don't, X and Y is actually probably a bad way to use the variables since they are X, X and X, Y anyway. But like, there's just simply this divergence of chromosomal structure that creates sex and that's it and then gender is therefore the same thing right and so you just can't you can't mess with those things they're just they're already set um and sartre wants to develop this philosophical orientation that rejects let's say the over conditioning of like the existence of a god the over conditioning of any sort of larger essential uh, essentializing and let's say essential framework and say that no 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 existence is first and so the implications of that are is you kind of are what you do, right? And yeah, you can say habitually, the reason that I would say Sam is a jujitsu lover is because you do jujitsu periodically. You wake up in the morning and you reaffirm your love for jujitsu by doing it, right? And it is through the doing. It's, it's a shift from like, let's say the noun to the verb, right? There's a, what is it? That love is a verb kind of thing. This is a very sort of existential idea. Love isn't just, I feel it in my heart and I have my private idea that I have, but I'm still going to treat you like shit. No, no, no. Love is the perpetual reaffirmation of the thing that you supposedly love by doing something, by sacrificing yourself, by giving your attention to it, by taking care of it, by nurturing it, whatever. And so it's that kind of idea that he's really trying to get at to ground his philosophical system. And so that's, that's really who he was. That's what he's known for um, is this idea of, you know, God is dead. And so what does that mean in a world where we aren't over conditioned by these essential ideas that are like structuring upon us and forcing us and kind of fitting us within these pre-constructed boxes? Like, what does it mean to be free then from that? And that's what he wants to do is he wants to think philosophically what it means to be free from that position of existence beyond outside of or after, let's say, the collapse of those essences. Existence means we're like physically existing and then whatever you put on top of that, that's the essence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically. You are before you become. No, the other way around. You become before you are. And that's actually really crucial. So existence for him, whenever you use like are or is, that's a little too universal and static. He wants to think more dynamically. So he's constantly thinking about flux in becoming. So again, it's what you do. So like one morning you might be a jujitsu lover because you wake up and you give your attention to jujitsu. But then let's say for the next two months, you don't pay any attention to jujitsu. You don't think about jujitsu. You don't go to the jujitsu forums. Are you really still a jujitsu lover? Maybe, you know, maybe, maybe you still have those habits of love within you that you're kind of still cultivating and nurturing, but it's about that process of becoming. So he really wants to think about becoming. And one of the things he says is he says, you are what you're not, and you're not what you are. And so by saying you are what you're not, what he's saying is like, okay, this thing that you are, he's like, actually, what you are is what you're not. Like, you're perpetually disrupting yourself. You're 
confusing yourself. You're you're kind of like contesting your own being, so to speak, because there is no such thing as like a essential being of what you are, right? Like yesterday I did one thing, today I'm doing another thing, tomorrow I'm going to do another thing, 10 years from now. So you're the thing that you are is actually what you're not. That's interesting. But then he says, and you're not what you are, right? This thing that you think you are is actually not what you are. So you are what you're not and you're not what you are is the kind of this weird paradox that we're always wrestling with. And that's his way of articulating that you are in this perpetual state of becoming. It's like that river analogy, right? Heraclitus, it's never the same river twice. Totally. Tell me if I'm wrong here, but it seems like that combined with Aristotle, where it's like virtue isn't these ideas. It's the stuff you do. It's your habit. So you can't be virtuous unless you're constantly doing virtuous things. Yeah. And then don't get so caught up in trying to say like, I am an X. I am a Y. I am a this. I am a financier. I am an academic. I am a poet. I am a this. Like, don't be so attached to those essences, right? Like, realize your freedom to be whatever the fuck you want. So it's not just a description that it's also a prescription. It's like kind of telling you how you ought to live. Totally. Yeah. There's an ethical element to this. Absolutely. Uh, I would even say normative. Yeah. This, uh, like you said, the prescriptive. Absolutely. There's an ethical element to this because it really is about that. It's about trying to claim your quote unquote radical freedom in the midst of this world where essences aren't over conditioning us. You know, and you can still live that way. You can still live like he talks in, in one of his, his probably his most famous book, uh, Being in Nothingness. Well, his most famous ph- philosophical book. He's also a writer too, like a novelist and a playwright. He writes uh, No Exit, which is a super famous uh, play that he writes. But uh, in Being in Nothingness, he gives this example of the waiter who plays the role of the waiter. And as that waiter is playing that role of the waiter, he's negating his freedom. Because he's embodying the essence. He's, he's negating what he could be. And it, this isn't a moral indictment like, ah, he should just be running around screaming like a banshee in the restaurant flipping tables over. That's not what Sartre is saying. He's really trying to just do more of an analytical, descriptive analysis at this point where he's saying this is how common what he calls bad faith That's when you live, when you deny your freedom, when you live by playing in your role, you're living in a state of what he calls bad faith. But this is how common and ubiquitous our condition of being in bad faith is. So therefore, let's perpetually strive to recognize that actually that is bad faith and that really we are in a state of becoming and we have the capacity within conditions of radical freedom to break from that overconditioning. When we're talking about being ubiquitous, a lot of us are performing all the time. So we're acting in bad faith, like in jujitsu, right? A lot of people, the first time they enter a dojo, they start talking like Mr. Miyagi, even though they've never talked like that before (laughs) in their life. Right. And they don't even realize they're talking like this, like a fortune cookie, right? But it's because once they enter there, they start this performance unconsciously and they're not acting like themselves. They're pretending to be something they're not, but they just slide in there like it's a comfortable couch and they don't even know that they're just like squished and comfy and just sagging into it, right? Totally. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm so sensitive to this sort of thing and I'm so sensitive to it everywhere. Like that's why I get frustrated with things like TikTok and Instagram culture when it just seems like everyone's just copying each other. I'm like, oh, you guys are just sliding into that position that's already been crafted for you. Did, did you ever see the movie Under the Silver Lake? It's a recent film that came out. No. Andrew Garfield film. And it's directed by, I think it's Robert David Mitchell, the guy that did It Follows. Um, 
But under the Silver Lake, it's about it's about L.A. too. It, it all takes place in Silver Lake. And one of the kind of really crucial, important themes of this film is how the pop culture industry just manufactures everything. And so there's this really interesting scene. It's a kind of a climactic scene where I don't want to ruin too much, but this guy's kind of like on a, a mystery kind of detective case. And he gets to this house and there's this guy playing music. And basically the old guy tells him that like all the songs in your life that have crafted your quote unquote rebellion are songs that I wrote. Like I gave you the voice. You were dancing to my song kind of thing. So you thought you were being free and rebellious, but really you were ideologically conditioned. And I think I am, I see that fucking everywhere. Maybe, maybe too much, maybe to the point where I don't even realize that there's freedom within the spaces. And that's one of the concerns that I try to ultimately work through in my life, but there's freedom within those conditions. And I'm not always aware of it. And I'm kind of like, ew, everyone's just fucking copying <laughs> each other. And then I look at myself and I'm like, ew, I'm doing it too. Ah, and then it freaks me out. And then I'm like, I'm in bad faith. You know, like I, it can, it can be kind of crazy. It's like, once you feel that you're in the matrix, then you just see the matrix everywhere kind of thing. Right. That's when you got to go to the gym. That's when you got to go to the gym and you got to get into a fight. Yeah. You got to get punched in the face. And then you're like, oh, okay, that's that's unique pain. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's another thing about fighting just off that point, right? We think we live in this world of unspoken rules and culture and norms, right? And then you go in there and then it's like, nope, it's a completely different set of norms. Here, people will hit you. It's that great quote from Tyson. It's like, you know, what is it like? You can make all the plans in the world until you get punched in the face sort of thing. Yeah. It's kind of like that. Like, yeah, you can have all your structures, you can have your essences, you can have your ideas, you can have all this stuff. But when something breaks through and it punches you in the face, then you got to improvise. And so what I wonder is, is can we like cultivate lives of that moment of the punch, the moment of the contact that stimulates that improvisation? And in, weirdly enough, actually, in the book, I think this is something that I try to develop based on Sartre's work, where he talks about this, what he calls the moment of the apocalypse. And he doesn't mean the apocalypse in the way of like zombie apocalypse, the end of the world, but he uses this word that's derived from a French writer named Malraux in this book uh, called like Days of Hope. And in it, it's about war and it's about how it is that men in the trenches still have a hope against hope, right? And what 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 is that point where it's like you are going to die, you are in this dire situation, but nevertheless, you still have this hope against hope. And Sartre expands this to talk about eruptions of freedom from within those situations where the structures are bearing down on us, where the ideological system is crushing us and controlling us. And what you get is an eruption, this apocalyptic revealing, which is what the word apocalypsis actually means in ancient Greek. It's this revealing of this thing that had been hidden or covered. It's like the return of the repressed. It's the return of the hidden. It's the uh, the voice of the other, that thing that has been suppressed that's crying out that can't be ignored anymore. And I think in the moment when you get punched in the face, in that moment of like uh, a revolutionary outbreak, like we see in Chile right now, or like you see with the Hong Kong protests, or you see with the French Revolution, or uh, the May 68 protests, or you see with like Black Lives Matter, in that moment of eruption, in that spark, there is this freedom, this like unconscious rage is what Franz Fanon, who is a, a post-colonial theorist, writes about. It's this unconscious rage that just bursts forth. And I think that's what happens, that when you get punched in the face, this unconscious set of systems become released that weren't there before. And I think that's metaphorically something similar that's going on here. So the question is, is can we, do we have to wait to be punched in the face? Do you have to wait for like a government 
to threaten your lives before that unconscious rage can be released? Or is there a way to produce some some level of free, uh, like creative freedom without being punched in the face? Or maybe we're always being punched in the face. And that's maybe the human condition, right? And so then rather than becoming complacent, we need to realize that we're always in a state of crisis. And then that will kind of like, perpetually perpetually like vigilantly create a system where we're always like responding in that Mike Tyson way forgetting the plans you know forgetting living in bad faith don't play the role you don't have the script yeah you've got your game plan throw that shit out the window because now it's time to improvise yeah so let's keep going on and let's keep uh defining terms cool what is dialectical reason so this is a super wanky technical term um so he uses it in contradistinction to analytical reason. And in very simple terms, analytical reason is that kind of reason that I was talking about before, that mathematical reason, that everything can be divided up into quantifiable bits and managed through data input, through a system of what's called external relations. So things that relate externally to each other. So on my desk right now, I've got my energy snacks where I've got like my almonds and you know, dried cranberries and cashews, whatever. I got that here. And then I've got a jar of honey next to me because for those of you out there that don't know me from my other podcasts, I am obsessed with skincare regimens and I use Manuka honey on my face. Sam, you know about that, I'm sure. Yes. <laughs> I got my cell phone on my desk. I've got uh, my book on my desk. I've got my laptop and they're externally related. They're individual little bits and they don't have any sort of like necessary relation with one another. That, that would be like an analytical way of looking at the stuff on my desk. A dialectical approach would be to recognize how and in what ways these things actually do relate to each other. Is there a sense in which my pack of energy boost mix relates to my laptop? Well, on the surface, it doesn't seem like it does. But in a way, they're creating the milieu of my desk. They've now just induced a hunger that's related to this podcast. And now I'm angry with Sam because I'm hungry and I want to eat. And he's making me fucking talk about my book. No, no, kidding. Um, but, you know, stuff like that. So there is a way to relate them. But then you're like, oh, but that's just a psychological relation. That's not really like an objective relation, like in the real world. So then Sartre would kind of say, well, but what if we could say he uses this term called a singular universal, whereas that like every singular entity that exists actually contains the universal of all of history in it. So within this energy boost snack mix in its plastic wrapping uh, and print text and all this stuff, the entirety of history can be derived from it. Like it's all there. It might be hidden. It might be latent. It might be unconscious beneath the surface, but it's still there. So like the machines that produced the plastic, the machines that sourced the material to put into the machines that made the plastic, the machines that were constructed to make the plastic themselves are derived from certain material and mineral minerals from the earth. Those things are all there. They're all asking to be seen, but they're all a little bit hidden beneath the surface. They're not all fully expressed in this package, but we can scrape beneath the surface and we can derive a kind of history of production, let's say, from looking at this thing. And we can do something similar with my laptop. And we can then recognize that, oh, some of the minerals and the materials that went into the construction of my energy boost mix are also in the, the processes that went into producing my laptop. That kind of thing. It's about intertwining and recognizing the interconnectedness of things. Not that everything's are the, that everything's the same, but that everything is ultimately participating in this universal historical process of becoming, but then they differentiate themselves as they take different paths in their like unique expression, let's say. Does that make sense? Yeah, it sounds a lot like uh, ideas from Buddhism to how everything is interconnected. 
there's definitely some crossover here. Like a lot, I'm actually really interested in Eastern philosophy. And I think that it's a shame that unfortunately Western philosophers don't spend enough time with Eastern philosophy. And I think a longer term interest of mine would be to really spend more time reading um, Buddha, Buddhist and Hindu and even Jainist texts and kind of really start to see how we can think through like merging them together to create larger thought systems that aren't just so European and so post enlightenment and so, you know, white boy stuff, <laughs> which is basically what most Western philosophy is. But that's kind of the idea. So he wants to then develop a, a type of thinking that not only thinks about the world in that way, but then, and here's the more interesting part, that thinks from the world in that way. So the the idea being that we think now not just about the world analytically as though like our minds are out here and the world is out there and we impose our thoughts onto an analytical world. But the argument from Sartre's perspective is that we live in a state of seriality and what that induces is a type of bad faith going again to this idea of playing a role uh, or this mimetic idea of living in the inferno of the same because not only do we think of the world analytically, but we think from the world analytically, which means that the world as it is structured creates patterns of thought in our own minds that are structured again in this, let's say, this feedback of the world is analytical, we think analytically, the world is analytical, we think analytically, right? And it's this reinforcing feedback that just induces a type of self-same thought processes. And he wants to say, well, but if we don't think about the world analytically, and we can think of things in this more interconnected dialectical approach, not only can we see things as being interconnected, but then that will change our patterns of thought in our minds so that the very rational processes in our minds think of the world not in those analytical terms, where we don't just think about managing the world up and dividing it up into these little externally related bits. So maybe we won't just think about the world from a capitalist framework, that natural resources are just simply there to be divided up and quantified and sold on the market so that we can extract super profits. Like maybe we'll think, maybe we'll come to the world because we're thinking from the world in a completely different way. And therefore that'll create a different type of ecological sensibility rather than an extractive sensibility. You know what I mean? So it sounds like instead of looking at things from the analytical, which is this narrow domain specific way of looking at the world, he wants to price it all in all the domains, everything, just put it all in there and it flows both ways. It's a two-way street. And let's just think of it that way. It's a, it's a, it's a million way street. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, it's a very difficult project, I think, for him to ultimately realize. And so the reason that, like I write my book, the reason that a lot of other scholars have written books on this text, even though it is his most underappreciated of all of his texts that he's, that he's written, his philosophical texts that he's written. Part of the reason is because he doesn't finish his project. He never actually ultimately finishes the book. He It's two volumes. He didn't publish the second volume in his lifetime. It came out a couple of years after he passes, and it was unfinished. He published the first volume in his lifetime. It came out in 1960, but it's 800 pages, and it kind of leaves you on a cliffhanger, and it's kind of like, all right, so this is what I've done so far in this. Next, we're going to do this, and that's going to be like the realization of the project sort of thing, and then he never finished it. And he kind of abandoned it and he moved into other terrain. And so it's a very frustrating project. And I think this idea of trying to develop a quote unquote dialectical reason is a very ambitious undertaking. And so my text isn't trying to necessarily develop a dialectical reason, 
so much as it is trying to take his text and reread it in a certain way, and then to try to alter or try to offer some sort of ways of thinking about how it is that we can kind of, um, how we can start to better investigate further this project of dialectical reason that he abandons. Okay. So moving on then, what do you mean by using the power of imagination to recreate the world? And how do you define imagination? Yeah. So, I mean, ultimately, I think that actually all human thought is imaginative. Um, I think there are, there are forms of cognition that aren't imaginative, like sense data and stuff like that seems to be a form of quote unquote thought that isn't imagination, but reflective thought, all reflective consciousness, all linguistic consciousness. I think all of that is ultimately imaginative. So I think all human consciousness at least expresses some domain or some dimension of imaginative thinking at all times. Um, I do think that there are inputs that are beyond the imagination, like at the affective or at the the level of stimuli or something like that. Um, But once it becomes cognized into the processes and through like the apparatuses of consciousness, then at that point, I think what you're dealing with is the level of the imagination. So what does it mean to use or harness the powers of the imagination to like create better worlds or to create society as a work of art, as I say in my subtitle? Um, I think what it really means is to kind of think speculatively, to to recognize the reality of the fact that we are being imaginative in our thought process, processes, processes, and then to figure out how it is that those thought processes are overconditioned by that bad faith, by that mimetic and serial analytical reason, and then to use dialectical reason as the way of trying to break out of that cycle. And so that's the idea. So then I try to work through a couple of different ways, quite, I think, speculative, and, and I'll admit, totally Un, un, I don't want to say unformed because they're kind of formed, but they're not, they're not the end of the story, let's say. And uh, so a couple of speculative proposals on how it is that we can, we can engage in this process to break ourselves out of that cycle. This goes back to the idea of how can we induce the stimulus, the punch in the mouth, the event, the apocalypse kind of thing, right? How can we get to that stage where maybe we are perpetually thinking and living and acting in a state that is not overconditioned by the essences that impose themselves on us, that tell us how to act, how to think, how to behave, how to feel, etc. So then by freedom, do you mean uh, the state where you've broken out of these cycles? Yeah, kind of. Uh, so generally it's referred to as negative freedom. Isaiah Berlin is a political theorist who makes a distinction between what he calls negative freedom and positive freedom. And negative freedom is free from something. Positive freedom is free for something. And Sartre is a French intellectual, and the French theorists are obsessed with liberty as defined as negative freedom. Freedom from, right? This comes out of the French Revolution. That's where the word left actually ultimately derives from, is the National Assembly during the French Revolution, uh, where you've got on the right-hand side, you've got the monarchists and the constitutionalists, and they're the ones who are, you know, they're still involved with the church. And then on the left side, you had those who were opposed. And that's the idea, is it's freedom from the state, freedom from the church, freedom from the old way of living within the government. And so the French kind of fetishize the type of negative freedom, I think, to the neglect of positive freedom. And that's another thing that I'm interested in, is trying to think through how we can use the imagination to then develop alternate positive freedoms, like positive visions for the world. What are we, what are we aiming towards? Not just what are we running from. Like, yeah, let's run from oppression and exploitation and its various guises, 
But you can't just simply run from everything because then you just end up in nihilism. And that's where a lot of later half of the 20th century philosophy, like for people who are familiar or maybe unfamiliar with terms like deconstruction, post-structuralism, sometimes the word postmodernism is thrown around quite loosely, especially by guys like, I'm going to say his name again, Jordan Peterson. Mm-hmm. Um, but part of the reason that that Peterson, for example, will be critical of like postmodern theory or post-structuralist theorists. He talks about Michel Foucault a lot, who's a really famous post-structuralist in France. Uh, part of the reason that Peterson is critical of them is because precisely this, like they just negatively destroy everything and they don't leave you with any values, right? So if there's no truth and there's no genders and there's no validity and there's no foundation for uh, economics or whatever, then that just means you can just do anything and believe anything. And then you live in a world of chaos, right? And uh, so I'm actually really concerned with that as well, but from obviously a very different perspective. I am concerned that if you live in a world of pure deconstruction, of pure negative freedom, then you don't really have anything to actually grab a hold of that gives you a positive vision that you are free for. And so I think the imagination can also help us with that. We can posit, we can speculate on future worlds or future ideas that we can try to use, not just as like essential goals to aim towards, because you got to be fluid here. You still have to maintain that becoming, but that they can be placeholders that induce a type of action in the present, right? So you, you posit universal equality as a future vision, and that motivates you in the present to try to engage in political and social activities to realize that vision. But then in the process, you have to be aware that maybe the term universal equality isn't a perfect term, right? Because maybe it doesn't include trans rights. Maybe it doesn't include black rights. Maybe it doesn't include some other minority voices that haven't even appeared yet. And so you have to then modify that future image. It has to be an, a kind of an empty, open placeholder that is perpetually sensitive to the material world, the actual conditions of the real world that are crying out to be demanded. And that again is where the improv comes in. Then you have to be sensitive to the actual voices of the world that are quote unquote punching you in the face. How does Marxism fit into this? And what is post-Marxism? Yeah. So how does Marxism? I mean, so at this point, Sartre is in the late 1950s, he's uh, embedded within um, a kind of like Marxist intellectual culture and then also a Marxist political culture in France. He's a part of, well, he's he's working within the French Communist Party. It's called the PCF. Uh, then he gets very critical of them um, because of their support of the Soviet Union when the Soviet Union invades Hungary in 1956. And the French Communist Party doesn't distance themselves from the Soviet Union. And so Sartre becomes very critical of them. So post-Marxism tends to work within a Marxist framework, it still believes that capitalism is a mode of production that extracts, uh, that expropriates, that steals, let's say, common resources and encloses them through processes of privatization and then turns things into commodities through the production system and then creates a consumer culture that is uh, rooted in, again, this idea of the system to reproduce itself so that then the capitalist system can encroach into further territories to enclose more of the commons and turn them into private assets for capital to accumulate and reproduce itself, again, creating consumers, wage earners who then can consume and then reproduce the system again, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? That's a basic kind of like really pithy way of understanding a Marxist, a loose Marxist framework. Post-Marxism works within that framework 
but rejects certain central tenets or criticizes or modifies or expands certain central tenets of Marxism. So like classical Marxism, for example, is very it can be criticized for being too economistic. It's too focused on economics, right? And that like some people think that classical Marxism articulates that capitalism just simply will come to an end. Like it's just determined within the processes of history that history will just lead to the end of capitalism and then you will get socialism and then you will get communism after that, right? And so post-Marxists are kind of like, nah, we don't know that the system necessarily is that way. There's something called the law of the tendential rate of profit to fall, which is this idea that there is an inbuilt deficiency within capitalism that the rates of profit are going to decrease because of various reasons, but because of automation and, and things like that, right? Um, but that, that the rates of profits are going to decline. And now there are some people that live, live today. Andrew Kleiman is a classical Marxist who writes a lot on this. Michael Roberts is another classical Marxist who writes a lot on this. And they write on how it actually is the case that the rates of profit are falling. And that is what is causing crises uh, in the history of the capitalist world, right? Uh, that that is the catalyst for crises. It is about this issue of profitability. Post-Marxists come along and they're like, well, we don't really buy the, this one, this idea of inevitability that capitalism will burn itself out because of its tendency towards crisis. But two, we don't necessarily buy the law of the tendency of the rate of profit to fall. We don't really think that it's a law, right? It's not like certain. It's not this absolute tendency, you know, like because sometimes there's times when capitalism is highly profitable. And also it's possible that we could live in a capitalist world forever. There's no guarantee that socialism is going to come in. And then thirdly, and maybe more importantly for Sartre, look what happened when communism did take root, or let's say when the communist parties took control, you get humanitarian crimes, you get these like oppressive regimes, you get lack of freedom, you get control over like the media, the things that the French theorists who want that liberty, that negative freedom from that they don't like, they don't like that stuff. So they kind of start to work in a different way to think, how can we still hold on to some of the central ideas of Marx and the critique of capitalism? But without buying into, let's say, the system of the Soviet Union or Mao's China, even though some post-Marxists like a guy named Elon Badiou, for example, who I work on quite a bit, who's very influenced by Sartre, he defines himself or at least has historically defined himself as a Maoist. And then Sartre, even later in his life, starts to get really interested in certain elements of Maoism, the Cultural Revolution and things like that. But but nevertheless, the point is, is that that's what post-Marxism is. It's kind of working in a critical distance from Marxism. Without imagination, are we like cogs stuck in a repeating loop of exploitation and oppression? So it's not without imagination. It's without a dialectical and transformative or poetic or creative imagination. Then yes. And this goes back to that idea again of the bad faith or let's just for lack of a better word, let's just talk about the matrix. If our frames of thought are conditioned by the worlds in which we live, then that means the thoughts we think, the things we feel, and the things we do and participate in are conditioned by the options that are on offer in front of us, right? And that's what you mean by material context, right? That's the material context, right? And material context doesn't just literally mean physical, like I'm banging on my wall. Not just physically that, but language is a material. Relations are material. Thoughts are material. I think everything is material. I am a materialist of some sort, um, not in the sense of like consumerist materialism. I hope I'm not one of those anyway. I try not to be one of those. Um, Just your skincare products. Like, come on, man. You got to look pretty, dude. I got to compromise on some things. This is audio. We can't see you. Uh, that's all right, man. I'll, I'll send you a really 
you know, Instagram filtered photo that you can accompany. No, um, but but yeah, you know, so it's the the material world or the the social structures, the religious structures, the political structures, and even the material environments, the ecological environments that we find ourselves in, and that they induce a type of thinking, right? So then the question is, is what type of if thought is imagination, what type of imaginative thinking does that induce? And if it induces that inferno of the same, where even the thoughts we think, like if I think when I wake up in the morning, first thing, I have an idea for a TikTok video so that people will like me more and they will follow me more on my Instagram channels and my YouTube channel and stuff like that. If that's what I'm thinking, well, maybe my imaginative frame of thought is already being induced by this system, right? So then the question is, is can we create alternative imaginative frames that aren't so over-conditioned by those material contexts so that we can realize that there are flows of freedom that exist in the world that maybe we're not tapping into. And by exploitation and oppression, are you talking about like the Marxian class structure or, uh, you know, anti-imperial like stealing of resources and wars to gain more material means? All of it, man. So exploitation in kind of like Technical, specific terms generally refers to economic exploitation in terms of uh, surplus value being extracted from workers. And that's, a, that's more of a Marxian term. And then oppression means more of that larger political set of concerns. So yeah, um, but yeah, I, I want to work through both because I don't want to just simply think about a, the extraction of surplus value. That's too classical Marxist. And this is, again, where the post-Marxist concerns might come in. I want to open that up to other concerns, concerns of gender exploitation or gender oppression in terms of racial oppression. Um, I do think that there's exploitation in those relations as well in terms of that there are cultural assets that, that are being extracted, right? Like think of hip hop culture, right? Like I have friends who actually, whether or not they're joking or they're serious, who say things like, you know, they're, 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 these are black friends of mine who will say things like, look at how much white culture has stolen from black culture, but yet we're not benefiting necessarily. We're not getting the returns. It's like a lot, of, like, yeah, a little bit, like, uh, you know, certain artists and athletes and things like that. And yeah, there are certain executives who are black executives, but really the people who ultimately mostly run, you know, EMI or whatever are these like rich white dudes, right? And there's a sense even which the broader Western culture has been so impacted by hip hop culture, but it's kind of an extractive relationship. So even that is an exploitative extraction of kind of a type of value that is being produced by uh, these social these social sources, this community of people. They're producing a value, but they're not always getting the return on that production. You know, so I want to open it up to all kinds of things, even into domains that we're not entirely aware of yet. So I'm really interested in ecological concerns well in this as well, like the environment rather than just viewing it in an extractive sense. How can we create a more integrated relationship with the world, with the earth? So you've mentioned this before that you've been thinking about how to break out of these cul-de-sacs of thinking. Do you have any examples of some of the things you've come up with? So, so the examples that like a lot of the French theorists use are the simple political examples. So I think we can use those, right? So they talk about the French Revolution as being a moment that was a, a moment of freedom when the people rise up against the oppressive monarchical regime. That, I think, is a type of expression of that freedom. The question for Sartre, though, is what happens after that, right? This is the famous thing that lefties like to ask, what do you do the day after the revolution or what happens the day after the revolution? And for Sartre, what ends up happening is you fall back into those same old bad patterns again, 
you might feel that moment of freedom. There's this event in the French Revolution that's kind of viewed as like the catalyst moment, the storming of the Bastille. And, you know, the French still celebrate Bastille Day to this day, right? And the Bastille was like the military barracks. There's like weapons and all kinds of stuff there. So the storming of the Bastille is this moment when the people take over this symbol of state power and they get the guns. And so let's say it's like me and you are part of this crowd. And in the moment of erupted freedom, you and I are equal. There is no Sam is X, Y, and Z, like we said before, American man, jujitsu lover. And there is no longer Austin is academic, Sartre scholar, and uh, loves the NBA. Like those identities dissolve and we just become same in relation to this singular goal that has been induced by this external foe. And we just run to the Bastille together and we become common. We ourselves become common. And we get to the Bastille and just randomly, just because I happen to run by where the weapons are, you're like, dude, go get a handful of muskets. And you're like, and then I'm like, okay, yeah, great. And you're like, I'm going to go up to the watchtower and meet me there in two seconds. And we don't fight and we don't quibble because I don't say, no, but I'm not a musket getter. I don't, I want to, I have better eyes than you. But then maybe someone is like, I have perfect 2020 vision and I've got glasses on. And they're like, I'm going to go to the tower. And you're like, cool, do that. But we don't really fight over it because again, I don't really care. I wanted to go up there. No. We just do it based on our role, based on need, based on the moment. That's that moment of freedom. But then what happens after we win? Well, then I might want to be at the watchtower. Maybe I don't want to be the musket getter anymore. It's cold and it's dark and it's not my thing. And I don't know. I want a girl to see me at the top or whatever, right? Like there are all these pressures that are always conditioning the way we think about things. And then that's when what he calls seriality uh, or what we might call that inferno of the same, that bad faith again. The playing of the roles comes back in. It's after that. It's after things settle. So the concern is, is how can you perpetually keep reinducing those moments of freedom? And so you see these moments of freedom bursting out, like even right now in Chile, right? We saw it with the Occupy Wall Street movements. You saw it. I think you see it a little bit surrounding the campaign of someone like a Bernie Sanders and a Jeremy Corbyn in the UK. You saw this with the uh, the uh, Arab Spring in Egypt and Tunisia and all over, right? People breaking free from the confines that are restricting them and, and suppressing them and saying, no, we demand to be heard. You see this with gay rights where they say, no, we want equality. Women's rights, no, we want the vote. Reproductive rights, no, we want uh, autonomy over our body. Those are those moments of freedom. But then the question is, is well, what happens after they get institutionalized? And then they become legalized and they become part of the political and juridical power structure. Do they then become the oppressor? Now that they have experienced the spoils of the freedom, it's possible. And you see this within the feminist movement at the moment, right? You have like second wave and third wave feminists who are critical of trans rights because they say you're not really a woman. So then that's that issue. They've experienced institutionalization. They've settled. And then maybe they're, you know, there's this nasty term that gets thrown around, but it's TERF. It's trans exclusionary radical feminists. It's like, well, maybe now they've become TERFs because they are excluding the trans person from experiencing the equality that they experience because they're not enough of a woman, that kind of thing, right? Or let's say like uh, civil rights, like the American, the African-American might get a certain amount of rights, but then what does that mean for the the Congolese immigrant that comes in, does that person get to partake? They're not African-American. They're Congolese. They're still black. They still bear the mark of the black skin. Can they experience that as well? Sometimes, yes. 
Sometimes absolutely. And I think in the more kind of radical and universal civil rights movements, you do see that. But sometimes there are there are factions, right? And that's the issue is how can we perpetually identify those new sources of otherness or those new voices of exclusion and perpetually create systems that that works through how to kind of overcome, if you will, all those exclusionary tendencies. Now, does Sartre have an example where it's not based around urgency, where it's not something uncontrolled that just rises up? Can we break out of these forms of thinking at will? This is, I think, the, the failure of a lot of French theorists, and Sartre included in this, is they fetishize the French Revolution too much. You know, they look at Bastille Day and they're like, that's it. That's what we need to do. <laughs> Always revolt. That's the only yeah, way. That's, it. that's why the fucking French love to revolt, man. Just look at the yellow vest protests recently, right, man? They've just, the May 68 protests, they're good at that, man. They're good at burning cars and fighting cops and shit and taking the streets. Even bad food is revolting. That's right. <laughs> they won't stand for it. I have a can of escargot actually in my cabinet right next to me right now. A French friend, she gave it to me and she's like, you got to try this. And I have not been brave enough to try it. So. <laughs> I don't know. It might be revolting. Um, but um, but yeah, exactly, man. They're, they're a passionate people, you know, like they they definitely have an emotional spark. Um, so I think that that's one of the weaknesses of, of Sartre's philosophy and of, of a lot of like revolutionary thinking that can kind of fetishize that moment of the break. Right. So a lot of my work then, and this is, I think, why I, I try to transition this towards the end of my book. And then I think just even more in my, my private life and, and in future projects. And I, and I want to write some more popular books in the future too. And I think I would write them something along these lines, you know, um, but really about how art, I, I think that art and I think that sport too, um, I haven't really thought as much about how sport does this, but I do think that it, it does have this, but but definitely art. I think art has those moments of freedom. Art is the community. It's almost like a community of freedom in so many ways. Not always. Like you said, you can go into the jujitsu gym and there's the meathead guy that comes in there that just wants to, I just want to fuck shit up, bro. You know? <laughs> um, but you know what? I guarantee you, if that meathead hangs out there for any substantial period of time, that mentality will diminish. It might not entirely go away, but it will diminish because he will be humbled so fast. He's going to get choked out for a year. And when you get choked out for a year, you fucking lose your ego, man. Like, it just goes away. You're no longer about us. And you realize how fragile the body is. Like, this is something that I've been thinking about a lot, too, is we realize how fragile we are. Like, we're not these. I just had a lung collapse and I had to have lung surgery. And I just... I couldn't do anything like I couldn't I couldn't like eat something and make myself feel better. I couldn't sleep and be like, oh, I'll feel better tomorrow. I couldn't do a push up and then feel stronger. I was completely at the mercy of my failing biological system. And when you feel that weakness and that fragility and that vulnerability in a jujitsu situation, in a combat sports situation, in a sports situation, when you've realized the limits of what you can do, I think that creates a completely different type of and, and humble outlook and connective outlook on the world. You realize how reliant you are on other people, on teaching, on instruction, on practice, on et cetera, et cetera. And then I think art does that too. Art is collaborative. It is creative. Um, it is constructive, it is productive, and I think it is so powerful emotionally. It doesn't always have to be. Like, 
when people are creating, and I know I keep talking about it, when people are creating TikTok videos, that's a type of artistic expression. But if it's a type of artistic expression that is, again, induced by that bad faith frame of the world that we were talking about, then that's going to just reproduce a type of bad faith artistic expression. But there are free artistic expressions. I went to a tattoo convention yesterday, and dude, there was some amazing artists there, you know? It's not all free. Some of it's mimetic and kind of lame. God, when you see somebody creating something and they're passionate about it and you see these people who commune together, people who are alternative too, right? People with face tattoos and crazy piercings. It's this alt community. But when they come together, there's something potent and powerful and I would say free about being in those types of communities. Here's an observation I've had and you could tell me if you've noticed the same thing once I say it and you think about it. So for me, Martial arts, especially mixed martial arts and those types of combative arts is like the combination of sport and art. And in all three of those communities, something like our normal office, regular day life, you might know 50 people and throughout the, the period that you've known them, or let's say you know them for your whole life, they may have never said anything profound. But within the world of mixed martial arts or jujitsu or friends you have that are artists or somebody who's like a major sports fan, every one of them at least one time will say something deeply profound. And especially in jujitsu, which is the most stereotypical version of this that I've seen is to your point about that bro, right? If he sticks with jujitsu, there will be a moment, even if he's like super like reactionary in other ways. He will at least have one moment where he says something really deep and profound, maybe just about jujitsu, but it was through going through that cauldron of getting choked out, being humbled, thinking about why am I here? Why do I exist? What is my body? Like all those things. And I think that is that freedom that you're talking about. And to your point, like different degrees, some people might have just that one moment. And then you have somebody like, you know, who's really good at the art and they constantly have these moments, right? Hmm. But maybe those are those breaks from freedom. You might have a sports fan where they're a complete meathead about everything, but then they tell you about this one game. Mm. There's a moment where they're describing something that's that that just transcends, right? That transcends who they normally are, actually transcends their normal language. Yeah. And I think it almost creates this weird. It's almost like a. Like a a contradiction, because you're kind of like, but wait a second, do you not realize what you just said? Why isn't the rest of your life lived like that? <laughs> they never realize it. <laughs> right? And I think there's a sense in which when you taste those, those moments of free expression, those moments of communal sharing, right? Like a sports team. Like I'm thinking of the NFL. You've got these 11 dudes on a field at the same time working with a staff of 100 coaches and personal trainers and dietitians, And then you've got family all behind that. And they're very aware of it. They are aware that they are a part of this larger unit. They're aware of the sacrifices that other people are making. They're aware of the hard work that they're putting in. They're aware of those like minute shifts in your diet or your training regimen that lead to huge gains or you run your route in a particular way or your blocking pattern in a particular, they're aware of all those slight little tiny fixes and how then those all slight tiny fixes are connected to everybody else's slight tiny fixes. And it's this weird network. But then a lot of times what then you get is you get people that don't then realize that the world of politics is similarly integrated. 
or that the world of society is similarly integrated. And that in my actions today, as I go to get my cafe and get my food, that that's all being impacted by, as crazy as this might sound, the uh, immigrants or the aboriginal people or the other individuals across town who are a part of a similar economic and socioeconomic network. Like maybe the reason I can get on my bus or that I can walk down this street or that I can go to this cafe is partly related to this larger system that we're all working through and working within and creating together, right? And I think it's really important to feel that. That's the uh, dialectical reasoning, right? That's it. That's 100% it. And I think sports is dialectical and I think art is dialectical. I just think that it's really easy to suppress that and forget that and then try to make quote unquote analytical art, which is then what you get when you get branding for like advertising. That's not really that dialectical. There's a dialectical critique that we can bring to analyzing art or to uh, to analyzing advertising. But I think when it's just trying to brand to induce some sort of like desire for consumption, then it's, it's like betraying its value. Almost, It has so much more to offer as this system of signs and symbols and meanings and sounds and things like that, you know? Yeah, it goes from art to gross. Totally, <laughs> totally. So let's end with this. What does it mean to be human? Here's the ultimate thing. I don't think we even know what it means to be human. I think that this thing that we call human is an idea that we're perpetually striving towards, that we think we are essence, but that maybe we're in the process of becoming existence, right? And so rather than just presume that we know what the human is, human is you are a biped and you have two arms and blah, 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 blah. Rather than just presume these ticking of these categories that then leads to this is what a quote unquote normal human is, homo sapien, X amount of like biological characteristics. What if we think about the idea of the human in different ways. And I think this actually isn't just like some sort of weird speculative thing that I'm just pulling out of my ass because it sounds nice rhetorically. But I think we can even look and we could say the thing that we define ourselves as human today is a construction. It's a social construction that is rooted in all kinds of historical forces or influences, one of which, maybe one of the prime of which is the enlightenment idea of what it means to be a rational thinking subject, right? So you get this so much with guys like Neil deGrasse Tyson and the Malcolm Gladwells and the Steven Pinkers that we are like these rational, you know, Richard Dawkins, that we just are like these rational calculating beings that if we just look at the evidence that we will then come to know the world, we operate through common sense and good sense just so long as we attune our analytical resources in the appropriate ways. But is that really what it means to be human? What about alternate expressions of human, the irrational, the pre-rational, the pre-industrial? Like, what if we look at pre-civilizational communities? Were they human? Well, here's the thing. When you erect this idea of a rational human based on scientific rationality as being the pinnacle of what it means to be human, you're simultaneously denigrating those other people as being pre-human in a way. Yeah, they were on the way to being human, but they were just dumb and they worshipped gods because they just didn't know any better. They were idiots. They thought that if you danced, then you would bring the rain. They're fucking morons, those savages. That's basically what you're saying. And so there's a real colonial logic in the way that we conceive of ourselves. Christian. That too, right? And that's where like religion and political power kind of like intersect together, right? And then it's always 
you're potentially a convert. And this is that religious thing again. You can become human insofar as you just embrace our logic of analytical rationality. Or you can become human just as long as you embrace our understanding of what gods you worship. Or you can become human if you just buy into these patterns of consumption, this system of economic exchange, this political structure. That's how you can be human. And I think that's all bullshit. And I think that that's just another form of a way in which we can, we can be in, we can be, well, I think there's two things. One, a way that we can be oppressed by external structures, but then two, and here's where it gets insidious, we can then take that idea on ourselves and then we measure ourselves against that idea of the human. And then we're perpetually chasing this ghost or this phantom of what it means to be human. And then we induce in ourselves, we become complicit in our own exploitation. And that's what I think. I would like to move ourselves out of, to think differently, to use dialectical reason, to use the imagination, to think about freedom so that we can create new ideas of even what it means to be human. Do we have new ideas to aspire to, new forms of collectivity, new forms of life and existence and integrated society? If we can aim towards those things. That's what I would ultimately like to, to focus on. <laughs> this was uh, like Marxist existentialist MMA for the mind. That's it, man. That's me. That's me. (laughs) So our minds probably need some rest. So let's stop here and give ourselves time to digest. And that's one thing about the internet. We're always going off of uh, gut reactions and just like the system one, as they say, like forms of thinking. With an episode like this, you need to listen to it and then just chill out and just like, you know, let it digest and then think about it tomorrow, you know? I heard a guy once say something and I've stolen this from him and I will use it until the day I die. I'm not trying to seek like the immediate conversion, right? Like everything nowadays is that we need it now. We need to know now. I need the answer now. I need to be changed now. You need to do something now. I just want to put a stone in people's shoes. That's what this guy used to say. I just want to put a stone in your shoe because when a stone is in your shoe, you know, sometimes it finds a spot where you don't need to take it out. And you're kind of like, oh, oh, fuck it. I'll get it later. That kind of thing. Uh, And then sometimes you're like, okay, I I feel the stone in my shoe and it sucks. And then sometimes you're like, all right, I got to take this friggin' stone out. And that's it, man. I just want to put a stone in people's shoes. And if it just annoys them, if it is just there to to call for their attention, to pay attention to it, that's great. And then if they get to that point where they have to really deal with it, then that's maybe another level. But again, it's it's not about that immediate conversion. It's a long process. And I think that we need we need to like reclaim conceptions of time that aren't so framed and structured by the need to do everything now and immediately. And this type of engagement philosophy is meant to be a slow burn. It is meant to be a long, lifelong process. So if people can't get enough of you, where can they find you? Well, after two hours of MMA uh, existential post-Marxist wanky meandering, if you want more of this shit. um, But yeah, so (laughs) I've got a podcast that I do called Owls at Dawn. It's uh, with my buddy Troy. And we talk more about this kind of philosophical stuff. And then we also talk about skincare regimens and swimming and taking care of your body and shit as well. So uh, in basketball, (laughs) a lot of basketball too, but a lot of philosophy and politics and culture. And then we do some religion and theology stuff as well. But Owls at Dawn, you can check that out. And um, I just recently started a series actually on my YouTube channel where I'm going to be reading the Bible over the course of a year. And I'm going to be giving like reinterpretations or 
kind of like post-evangelical or heretical kind of interpretations of the scripture. I have a bachelor's degree in Bible. I mean, I was training to be a pastor, as I said, kind of at the outset, and I thought that that was going to be my life. And, and I've come to see that the Bible actually says different things when we actually read it in the original language and understand the historical context a little bit better. And so I'm going to be reading through the Bible over the course of a year and just kind of giving my thoughts on that on my YouTube channel. So you can find that. It's just Austin Hayden Smith. And the title of the series is An Apostate's Bible Read-Through. So you can check those out. And then, of course, Twitter. I'm on Twitter, Austin underscore Hayden. Insta, AUS underscore H-A-Y. Fucking TikTok if you really want Austin underscore Hayden. <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to do it yet. I, I'm enjoying like watching funny videos of like Lad Bible and shit, but I don't know if I'm going to really start to be a creator on TikTok yet. All right. Well, thank you, Austin. Thank you, Sam. Now that's the show. We've grown Southpaw purely from word of mouth, so that means it's all organic. So if you're already spreading the word, please continue to do so. If you've never done it, please consider telling your friends, sharing on social media, and also leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. This will make it easier for others to find us. And since this is independent media, Every dollar you pledge on Patreon goes a long way in the production of the show. Find us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. Here in my garage, just bought this uh, new Lamborghini. But you know what I like a lot more than me? More than me. But you know what I like a lot more than me? More than me. Here in my garage, just bought this uh, new Lamborghini. But you know what I like a lot more than me? More than me. But you know what I like a lot more than me? More than me. Here in my garage.